You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Good morning. So good to be here. So I would love just to open up in prayer. It's so funny how y'all sit in the back. (laughs) I want to encourage you like that mom, come on up here. Uh, That's all right. That's all right. You can still hear the word, and that's what's important. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us, for every single one of us this morning. So, Father, I do thank you for you. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that is here. Father, I thank you for how good you are, how perfect you are. We are in awe of you. And, Father, if there's anyone in here tonight that doesn't know this awe, that, Father, right now you'd begin to fertilize their hearts, you begin to soften, massage out their hearts to receive the word that you are planting, not me. You're planting it into these fertile soils of the hearts. And it's only there, Father, that we can be changed. And we don't want to just come to church to be entertained anymore. It's not about entertainment. It's about transformation. And so, Father, I can't transform anyone because I can't get to a human heart, but you can because you made the human heart. So, Father, I just invite you, Holy Spirit, just fall fresh in this atmosphere. Fall down like a blanket from heaven on every person that's here this morning. Wake us up internally, Father God, to receive what you have for us today. Remind us who we're coming before. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this, this is an interesting topic because this is a topic that I've been really uh, sitting on for, I don't know, a good two, three years and it's this whole thing about the disciples. And, and remember, in the, in, in the Gospels, we learn that both uh, John and James' mother, just like this clip, asked Jesus, can my sons be first in your kingdom? And yet over and over and over again, Jesus just kept reminding them, it's not about you being first, it's about you serving. And so February 23rd of this year, just last month, I was sleeping, and uh, it was 11.10 at night, and I was abruptly woken out of sleep, out of a deep sleep. And I heard two words. And these two words, it was like piercing, but it was gentle. It was loud, but it was like this whisper. It was jolting, but it felt like this warm hug. And I heard two words, and the words were keep low. And it was, so, it was so powerful that it woke me up out of a deep sleep. And I remember I went to my phone that sits to my right side, and I wrote it down on my phone. I'm like, what, what does keep low even mean? What in the world? I don't even talk like that. Keep low. But I made sure to write it on my phone. I went back to sleep. I woke up the next morning. I'm like, I think I literally heard from God. And I want you all to know that we can still hear from God. Whether he talks to us in the spirit or you hear him audibly, he's the same God yesterday as he is today as he will be forever. So he still speaks to us. So I believe that that was him speaking to me and I kept that and I held on to that. And the next morning I kept saying, what was that? Stay low? Be low? Because it's not my verbiage. And I looked it back up on my phone. I'm like, no, my father told me to keep low. Keep low. And, you know, I was telling a girlfriend of mine, I told a few people about this. I said, I really need prayer on these two words. Like, I literally heard from God. And he's warning me right now to keep low. Because it's kind of an oxymoron that we're talking about keeping low. We're talking about can I be first when I've got lights on me right now. I'm on a stage with a microphone. 
And then you have amazing gifts and talents up here singing their heart out. But what really happened this morning before you all got here was there was a beautiful woman that was going up and down every one of the chairs that you're sitting in. And she was praying over you. And no one will ever know about her. But God says in his word that he sees the secret things that are happening in the secret places of his throne room. You also didn't see the circle of volunteers that come here at 6 in the morning to get this ready for everybody. And what we also don't see is that you sitting in these beautiful chairs, you're the church, not me, not Jeremiah, not the worship band. You're the church. The body of believers is the church. Our job is to go back every day into the throne room and receive from our Father and then come back here and celebrate from the overflow of what you received in the storeroom of, in the throne room of your heart. This is a celebration of restoration when we come back together on Sundays and then you go out through the week and you go be the hands and feet and the heart of Jesus to your community. This is a place, yes, you get filled, but don't think for one hot second that this is the place that we're going to get filled for the rest of the week. Most of the filling is going to happen in your throne room. It's just you and your father before the world starts, before that sun comes out. Before you dare have a conversation with one more person, let him fill you to overflow. Because this world is heavy, and this world is dark, and this world is perverted, and this world is painful, and this world, world is hard. Right? And so we get to every day, go into the throne room to, with a, a mighty, awesome, gorgeous, transcendent, yet intimate, personal, with you type of God. That gets to mend the broken places, that gets to fill up the empty spaces of your heart to overflow, and then and only then do we have anything to give anybody that day. And so with this keeping low, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she said, Joy, it's so interesting because she said, I used to work in the, in the elementary school, and we used to use that verbiage because I worked with this fire preparedness program. And she says, what we do is when you're in a fire, you, you keep low so that you have oxygen to breathe. Keeping low allows you to breathe. If you go up into the fire, into the heat, into that furnace of affliction area, and you start to breathe that in, you don't have the deep breaths that you can have to survive underneath. And so keeping low allows you to breathe. And I thought to myself, you know, in the book of Exodus, God tells us that his name is Yahweh. And Yahweh just means I am. I am who I am. I am enough for you. I am sufficient. I am good. I am faithful. I am kind. I am love. I am holy. I am that I am. I, I'm not I am who you want me to be when you want me to be that. I am. And man, I'm so glad we have a steadfast, anchored God who just says, I am. But that word Yahweh, it's Y-H-W-H, and it actually, it's not even pronounceable. That's a word. You can't pronounce it. It's a breathing in is the Yah, is the way. And so we breathe about 22,000 times a day, 8 billion people in the world. So 8 billion people, 22,000 times a day, are declaring the great I am. Isn't that fascinating? Even those that don't know God, every time you breathe, you just declared, yep, he's the great I am. But if the enemy can keep you from breathing, he can keep you from declaring God's name. That's why suicide is an all-time rape, because he does not want us breathing. He has come to steal, to kill, destroy, to take us out. And the interesting thing about Yahweh is the Y-H-W-H, that H actually is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 
which isn't even a letter, it's a theology, and it means grace. So every time you breathe, every time I breathe, not only am I declaring 22,000 times a day that he's the great I am, but I'm declaring it is by grace and grace alone that I am here today. I take no credit for it. It's not my great gifts. It's not my great talent. It's not me killing it for the kingdom. It's not about how many people show up at our ministry. No, it is because grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that I am here today. And so when we keep low, we get to keep breathing the great I am, not me but him. We keep declaring the grace, not gifts. God's grace, not joy's gifts. It's this most beautiful transaction that he's, he's given us. And I, I, I don't know about you, but have you been watching the whole 15-ish days of the Asbury revival that was happening? Anybody know about that? Awesome. One person. Well, if you missed it, I'm sorry you missed it. Because what we saw is the window of heavens literally opened up. And the warmth of heaven fall down on the, on the space and the atmosphere of a little tiny chapel in the middle of basically nowhere in Kentucky. Where there wasn't a person, it wasn't about a place, it wasn't about a worship band that everyone flocked to come see that, that just dropped their latest single. It wasn't about a pastor that everyone couldn't wait to go hear. It was about Jesus. There was, never, there was no name. It was a titleless, prestigeless, nameless revival with Generation Z, the same generation that I've got of my children sitting here today that we speak so negatively about. It was this generation. They were sick of the fogs, and they were sick of the lights, and they were sick of the show. They, got, they were just tired of it. In fact, I said to my son yesterday, I go, give me one piece of advice that you want me to share tomorrow when I, when I, come, when I, when I speak. And he goes, Mom... Keep it real. Amen. Period. Keep it real. And I'm like, you know, I walked away from that. I'm like, Lord, I want to keep it real. But, man, I get myself in the way. My pride gets in the way. My, my performance mentality gets in the way. My need to want to please you, that you walk away today feeling like you got a good, you know, scripture and good, good sermon today. But at the end of the day, that's all meaningless. Because if, even if I get it all wrong, our God gets it all right. He's so powerful, and that's what I really want to talk about today, because that's what he started, has started to do in my life. And we saw this at this Asbury revival, that what we just think is going to all the strategies and, and all, the, all the details and all that stuff is great, but it's secondary. And God comes in, and he flips it right side up. And he's like, yeah, you know all that strategy you've been doing, all that strategizing you've been doing, all that performance you've been doing, all that perfection you've been doing, all that trying to get it perfect that you've been doing. I'm going to show myself in a way that hasn't been shown really ever in the history of mankind. And I'm going to come down when it's just been ten people that trickled up and got onto their knees and confessed how good God is. The simplicity of that, the beauty of that, the power of that. And, man, he has had me in this for a few years. And when that happened, you guys, I, I, I was, like, ruined. I was wrecked in the most beautiful way. I had to go do a message live on our, um, our live stream that Monday morning. And I just, I had the ugly cry before 47 states as our live was going. Because I just was, he, he, came, he did, he did what, I, what he said he was going to do. In such a humble, humble manner. And what it ended up being is this true posture of worship that I'm praying happens here today. In your own individual hearts, wherever you might be. Do you know that Genesis 22 
It's the very first time we hear the word worship. Because right now, if, if I were to ask you, what do you think the word worship means, you probably would have said what was happening here on stage, correct? And that is a form of worship. But the original, when, when God first said the word worship, when he first placed it in his alive and powerful, active and God-breathed Bible, it actually meant putting that thing on the altar. It was when Isaac was about to be uh, killed by his father, Abraham. And Abraham and Isaac, Abraham said, I'm going to go worship with my son Isaac. And he puts Isaac on the altar. It's obedience. It's surrender. It's putting that thing that you walked in here tonight or today with, it looks like tonight, today with, this morning with, it's about putting that thing on the altar. What is it in your life that needs to be put on the altar this morning? Because why not do it today? Why wait? It's heavy. It's burdensome. The enemy's using it to mess with you. Lay it on the altar. That's true worship. And that's what happened at Asbury. That's why we saw all these young kids day after day, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, streaming from all over the world because there was true Holy Spirit-infused worship happening. And so today's message is, can I be first? And I was looking at that, and back in Genesis, there's a... There's a time where we see Satan, you know, kind of come into the picture for the very first time. And he goes, to, he goes to Eve and he starts to mess with her. And, you know, the interesting thing is that he doesn't, like, tell Eve, you know, you're not worthy. You're just, you know, you're just second. You're no good. You're used. He doesn't mess with her identity. He messes with her God's identity. Did God really say that? Is God really that good? Because he knows what we oftentimes don't know is that we actually were made to worship. And so if he can make us worship ourselves and not the one who made us, he's got us. And we live in a culture where we are really all about worshiping ourselves. We are in a selfie culture. And he didn't even ask Eve to worship him. We don't have to worship Satan. He doesn't look that obvious. As long as we can worship ourselves, and I'm really good at that. That's my default button. And it's going to be the thing that takes me out the quickest. And that's why my God was so, so kind that morning to say to me, Joy, with what you're doing and where I have you right now, you better keep low. Because pride, pride comes before destruction. Haughtiness comes before the fall. And so he goes to Eve and, he, and he, you know, he reminds her that she can be the one. Like, people can worship you, Eve. You don't need God. You can be the one to be worshipped. And really, at the heart of us wanting to be worshipped, at the heart of us wanting people to think that we're first, it's really insecurity. It's really masked, deep-seated insecurity when it's like, you got to know about me, you got to see me, we got to talk about me. There's really something so deeply, inherently flawed that's deeper than we can understand. Because when you are walking in security, when you are walking as an adopted child, an heir of God, you have security. You can let other people have the lights, other people have the platform for, that people can see, and you don't need to have it. You can be that precious woman that was praying over these chairs that no one will know about. Because you are so deeply secure that your papa sees you, your father God sees you. That Yahweh that has given you breath 22,000 times a day to declare his goodness sees you. And when you know that he sees you, and when you know that you are walking in his path, not perfectly, but, but, but just being held by him, I'm telling you, 
the life of freedom right there. And so God comes in and he flips it, like I said, right side up. But the interesting thing I was reading just this week in the Washington Post, there's a study that said that America right now is a nation of narcissists. We are a nation of narcissists. And that's kind of a, that's a word that we're really tossing around a lot. <laughs> but that's what we've become. In fact, we've become so much of a nation of narcissists that we even make pages about ourselves. And it's normal, isn't it? Social media pages. But the true heroes of the Bible, I just gave this a minute. I want to just share this with you. The true heroes of the Bible, it's so fascinating because it's so counterculture to what we're used to today than how it was in the word of God. So God comes on the scene and he's like, who can be my mouthpiece to free all my children? Like, who could it be? Maybe I'll pick out the greatest communicator. Maybe I'll pick out that someone's so prestigious. But he picks a man named Moses who actually cannot speak a sentence without stuttering. And he's like, no, God, you chose the wrong person. It can't be me. Don't pick me. But he's like, no, because it's not about your gifts. It's not about your eloquence. It's not about your great communication skills. It's about my power that is in your weakness. So I'm going to choose the weak so that I can be put on platform for all to see, not you. So he chooses Moses, and he chooses David, who is the youngest sibling. He's despised. He's rejected. He's dejected by his, by his family. He chooses, he chooses a man named Gideon, and Gideon is the least of his family. He's like, why would you choose me to lead this army? I am the least of my family. And then he chooses Mary. She's young. She's unwed. She's unseen. She's unknown. And he chooses this young, unseen, unwed, unknown woman to place his seed of the Messiah in. He chooses shepherds, the lowliest of the lowly, to go declare that the Messiah is coming. You know, you think he would choose a king. You think he'd choose the richest person. You think he would choose someone with prestigious level. But no, he chooses shepherds who people would spit on. They didn't even want to be seen with. That's who I'm going to choose. I mean, God is so much making a point here. And then he goes on, the woman at the well, she had been married five times. She's living with her current boyfriend, and God finds her, Jesus finds her. And she's the first person, a woman, a Samaritan woman, who is like, um, like an outsider. They don't really know all about God, supposedly. And he chooses her, who's been married five times, which means she's been rejected five times, because women couldn't divorce men then. And she's now living with her current boyfriend. He chooses her to tell her, before anybody else, that he's the Messiah. She's the first person to ever hear that in her ear. Simon and Anna, two old people, right? She's widowed. They're the ones that are going to declare over baby Jesus he has come. Two more. Matthew, tax collector, doing his thing. He's in his sin. And Jesus goes and finds him to be one of the 12 disciples. Mary Magdalene, seven demons plagued her. And she's the very first Christian that ever walked on planet earth. She saw the resurrected Jesus, a woman, a woman who was plagued by seven demons. And Jesus chose her to be the first evangelizer. Jesus chose her to see the first bit and and sight of the resurrected Jesus. I could go on, but we just don't have enough time because I only have 15 minutes. This is how Jesus works. He flips the script on what we know our culture to be today. There is no strategy. I mean, it's dumb. God's strategies were just plain out dumb. I mean, really walk around a wall seven times and that's your strategy and the walls are going to come tumbling down? Wait, bring all the people to a sea that's taller than me and you're going to split it? Like, that makes no sense. 
And what if today, what if we operated out of these strategies that didn't really make a whole lot of human sense? But instead we went into the throne room. But instead we got onto our knees. But instead we had intimacy with our Father and we asked him to give us his strategy and not man-made strategy. We asked him to give us his purposes and not my purposes. We asked him to give us his wants and not my wants. What would that look like? You know what that looked like? It looked like revival. It looked like miracle. If every face I see in here today, that I'm trying to look at all your faces, it would be miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And not in the way that you might think. Miracles where chains fall off. Miracles where that generational curse is eradicated. Miracles where that relationship has been restored that everyone told you is hopeless. Miracles where that prodigal child comes home. Miracle upon miracle upon miracle, your soul sickness is eradicated. The lies of the enemy have been booted out forever. That's what would happen. And so Romans 9.25, he says, I'm going to call the nobodies and I'm going to make them a somebody. He said, I'll call the unloved and I'll make them my beloved. 1 Corinthians 1.27, he says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise of the world. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong of the world. And he goes on to say in verse 128, God chose despised of the world things that are counted as nothing. Like think of right now, just like personalize this verse. What in things in the world are just counted as nothing? He said, I'll use those. And I use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And so we're going at the Last Supper for a moment. And as we saw in this clip here, this continued question that the disciples constantly ask Jesus, can I be first? Even the mamas are like, can my sons be first? And they're at the Last Supper. They've been walking for, with Jesus for three years, and they still ask the question in the book of Luke. He asks the question, like, and, and they're like, Jesus, can we be first? And Jesus so kindly in Luke twenty two twenty six, he says, listen, The greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the ones who rule should be like the ones who serve. And then it gets so gospel gorgeous, you guys, because then in the book of John, it like, it's like a puzzle piece to what we're missing in Luke. This is why you got to know the word. you got to read it from the beginning to the end. It's the most beautiful book you'll ever read in your entire life. It's meant to be read from the beginning to the end. 66 books of a love letter for your soul that we get to read. And so in the book of John, he fills in the gaps in John 13, and Jesus says, okay, listen, I'm going to show it to you. And he starts to wash the feet of the disciples that we've probably heard before, right? But he does something so beautiful here. He says this. He says, as he's washing their feet, after he just got done saying them, like, the first has to be last, and the last is going to be first. It's all flipped right side up in my kingdom. He says this to them. This world, uh, he said, he's actually, you'll be blessed if you do this. You'll be blessed if you do what I'm doing right now. And so I had to look up that word blessed in Greek. Do you know it's the same word that's used in the Beatitudes when Jesus tells everyone, you're blessed if you do this, you're blessed if you do that, you're blessed if you do this. And the actual meaning is this. It's this like exuding, exceeding, abundant joy and peace and happiness that comes from an internal anchored uh, like steadfastness in your soul. Every human being desires that, do we not? Who doesn't want that? Even when you don't know God, like you're made to want to have this joy and this exuding happiness within the belly of your soul. And he said, there's only one way to get it. And that's to do what I'm doing and, and literally taking the feet. These, they didn't have shoes. Their feet are filthy. 
It's looking somebody else eyeball to eyeball that feels filthy of shame and telling them how much Jesus loves them. It's coming alongside somebody that has hurt you and talked behind your back and loving them through it anyway. It's seeing the messy of other people because you first saw the messiness of you. And God has given you the comfort, so now you actually have the comfort to give another person. And he says, then and only then are you blessed. You can't be blessed being first. It's a lie. It's a, it's a lie from the pit of hell from Satan himself. But the world tells all of us here, just be first. Just kill it for the kingdom. Just do, your, do the best you can, like even if everyone gets hurt. And it's a lie. Then you'll be happy. If you get all that number in your bank account, if you get that number on the scale, if you get that number in the pews at your church, if you're a pastor, whatever it might be, sales at, jo- at your job, then you'll get that happiness that you are made to crave. But it's actually a lie. And that's why our suicide rates are the highest. That's why anxiety is the highest it's ever been. That's why depression is the highest it's ever been. Because we're falling for the lie because the true blessedness comes in washing the feet of another. But this is, and I pray I've got time, so just pray where you're at that God presses pause here. So 13 years ago, uh, I hit a rock bottom. And this saved my soul. And it can save yours as well. And the cool thing about it is I opened it up because I was just in such a desperate place. My husband and I, our marriage wasn't doing well. We had three beautiful young children. And I was very ill-equipped on how to raise them. I had a lot of internal soul sickness. And um, I remember I just kind of had a breakdown in my office. And, you know, the beautiful thing about breakdowns is it's a beautiful thing. Because when you have a breakdown, you finally then can have the break open to finally have that breakthrough that we sing about when it's on the screen, but we can't have it till we have that breakdown. And I didn't realize that that was such a beautiful thing to my father when I broke down. And it was there that he said, Joy, start from the beginning. I want you to learn about me. And I had so much idolatry in my heart, you guys. And idolatry is just this polluted, uh, deprived, like counterfeit version of God's love that makes you more starved, more hungry, more thirsty than when you began. And I started from the beginning, and I started to recognize how big my God was. I started to recognize how awesome he was, how transcendent he was, how gorgeous he was, how enormous he was, how how majestic. Like, there's no words in the thesaurus that you can explain our God, how good he is. And I don't want any one of you to just think that he's just your chum chum friend because he is a friend. But he's a holy God that sits on a holy throne that we get to come into. And I know I sound a little stern right now, but I don't want any of us leaving without knowing how amazing our God is that sits on a throne. Where right now as I'm speaking and you're listening, and I pray you're speaking along with me in your heart. There are thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands of angels singing right now. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And I pray that moment by moment by moment you hear that. You hear the singing of that. You don't forget that because when you go through the trials, you got a God big enough to take that from you. you got a God who can tear down those Jericho walls when it looks dumb and you're walking around it seven times. You have a God who will part the Red Sea when, that, when the enemy tells you that you can't get through those waters. You have a God who will split open those mountains when the enemy tells you that mountain's too high. 
We need to know, we need to have this posture, this reverence of awe. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning, the beginning. Not just knowing his love, not just knowing he's a great friend, not just knowing he's with me. No, it's the beginning. We need to know the fear of the Lord. We need to know what the angels know, what the prophets knew, what all of heaven see. And I pray right now, all of a sudden that veil is being lifted from your eyes and you start to see the glory of a good God. And that fear of the Lord, the awe, the reverence, we, God's like, let's resurrect that back from the dead. We need to have that in order to break free from these addictions and these cycles and these habits and these defects of character that are tormenting us. That we go here with a smile, but I know many of us, because I live this life, we go home and we turn and we turn down the, the drapes and we close the front door and there's a deep sadness and there's a deep emptiness. It's not how he made us to live. Yeah, we're going to feel homesick. We're not home. I'll embrace my homesickness. I have that every minute I live. But that emptiness, no. 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 So when I got home from, I went to recovery 13 years ago in California. My husband followed me two years ago, or two years after that, I should say. We would come home and we would do church with our children. And every Sunday, and we'd have church around the kitchen table. And then oftentimes after that, we would get onto our floor of our family room. And we'd bow our knees on the floor. And they're all here now. They're adults now, but they were little and we would pray, and we would just let the Lord see us in this family room on our knees with our kids, with my husband, before a holy God. It's not on social media. No one's taking a selfie of it. It's just coming before a holy God saying, thank you, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, that I am even here. So lack of time, I'm going to have to skip some more over this, but I think this is a really good story that I want to share. My son, who lives in Arizona, we went to go, went to go visit the school that he's at, and we, we had this really beautiful excitement to want to go see the Grand Canyon, you know? Because I heard, like, it's a spiritual, like, experience. And um, they're all going to get a little antsy because this was not a good day in the Lee household, and probably because of me. But we're all excited, and we get to, we get to, we get to this uh, place that, like, I can't wait to like just feel how small I am and how grand this is and to see this majestic experience in sight. And we get there, you guys, and it's a full-on whiteout. Like I don't mean like some flakes. Like I could see nothing. I'm staring at, I think what I'm staring at is the Grand Canyon. All you see is a white wall. And we literally got into our car and we looked up on YouTube what the Grand Canyon looks like while we're sitting in the parking lot of the Grand Canyon. You know, and I, and I thought to myself, it's, it's very much the way that we kind of do life today in the Christian circle. We come to church, and we hear the great music, and we hear the speaker. And, but there's this veil that kind of is in, in the front, and it's this white out, and we really don't see the massiveness of the Grand Canyon of our God. The canyon upon canyon, the gorgeousness, the depth, the height, the width, the breadth. Like, I don't have a word for how awesome he is. Because there's this whiteout. 
there's this veil. And actually, 2 Corinthians talks about it. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, So all of us who have had this veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, who is the Spirit. And he makes me more and more like him, and I'm changed into his glorious image. When there is a whiteout, when there is a veil in front of us, not only can I not see God's glory, but I can't reflect his glory. But when Jesus died on that cross, do you know that moment at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when everything was dark? The veil in the temple was ripped from head to toe. The veil that kept people from being able to see the awesomeness, the throne room, the beauty, the holiness of their God. He no longer was just the friend God. He was the gorgeous God. He no longer was just the chum chum. He's the holy God. He's now a throne room that you can come with boldness and confidence to the throne of grace. We all have that privilege to do this now. You don't have to just come to church and then see the white veil and the kind of, you kind of know you're with God, but I didn't really. And then you go out and you open up your phone and you listen to podcasts for them to tell you what the holy God's like. No, you can experience the holy God yourself. Every day, not just at church. If you could only see just what he looks like right now, the smile upon his face, on your face as I speak at this very moment. There's a story as I start to... Uh, close this up. There's a story about a man named John Bevere. My mother-in-law was just sharing this with me the other day. And uh, I've read this before, however. He went to go visit Jim Baker in prison. Not Jim. Yeah, Jim Baker, right? Is that his name? Am I getting the name right, Denise? Okay, good. And he was, a, he was an evangelist on television. You probably heard of his name. And Tammy Baker was his wife with the eyelashes. And, uh, but unfortunately, the enemy got a hold of them. And they did some terrible things. And Jim Baker ended up in prison as a result of it. And uh, John Bevere, who is a, a, a preacher, a teacher type of thing, he comes into the prison to visit him. And he says to him, um, Pastor Baker, like, when did you stop loving Jesus? And he looks him square in the eye and he said, he said, I never stopped loving Jesus. I stopped revering Jesus. And I want you just to let that settle in. God has called us into a position and a posture of reverence. And the antidote comes from Isaiah 6. Isaiah gives us a glimpse of what it looks like in the heavenly realms. And he comes before this like high and exalted throne that God sits on. And his, his train fills the whole atmosphere of this place he's at. And immediately he's like, woe is me, I can't even see. Woe is me, like I'm undone, I'm ruined forever. In, in the face of how amazing, his, how amazing my God is. And the doorposts start to shake and the thresholds start to shake. And there's smoke that's like accumulating everywhere. And then God just comes in so beautifully and he has his angels touch Isaiah's lips. That he said, just feel so filthy next to a perfect God. And he says, no, you're forgiven, you're whole, you're clean in my presence. And then he goes, I've got a mission for you. I want to take your misery and make it your ministry. I want to take your mess and I want to make it your message. I want to take that testing and we're going to make it your testimony. Who can I send? And because he had been in this posture of reverence on his knees, because he'd become before like a holy God, like it's not about me. Like, it's not about my gifts. It's not about my talents. It's not about being a great communicator. It's not about being a great musician. It's nothing to do with it. It's about you. Like, you get all the glory. My weakness is when your strength is put on a platform for all to see. And then and only then can we say, 
I'll, I'll go, send me. And Isaiah, he gives us this antidote. And so I want to just see if they can put this up for us for a moment. And this is just four hours. I know I'm going over and I apologize, but I just feel like the Lord is wanting to share this with each one of you. Is that okay that I just go a couple more minutes? Okay. So there's these four R's that as I started to walk through the word of God and his reverence in the Old Testament and through the New, because he's the same God here as he is here, and I started to see that this holy God was the answer to my idolatry. This holy God was the answer to my addictions. This holy God was the answer to my, my, my marriage that was dissipating. The holy God, the reverent God, the fear of God was the beginning of life for me. And so I saw these four R's that were like this beautiful thread throughout all 66 books, and it was recognition. And that's what I just want to share with you right now. This rec- recognize, that's all he's asking for you, is just recognize I've got this sin I brought into this place this morning. Recognize I've got this defect of character. I've got this spirit of offense. I've got this issue. I've got this bitterness. I've got this anger towards that person that's talked about me. I've got this issue, whatever it might be, just recognize it right now. It's all God is wanting is just for you to cry out and just recognize it. No more stuffing it. No more repressing it. No more trying to be first so you just deny it and the insecurity just festers and grows. Like I recognize it. And then the next one is reverence. When you recognize your sin for what it is in, a, in front of a holy God, you can't help but just fall flat on your knees in awe of him. Because when everyone else has left you because they're sick of rescuing you from a pit, that you've catapulted yourself in for the 67th and a half time, God never gets sick of rescuing you. You can never exhaust him. He always comes back for the one. He always leaves the 99 to go find you. And then it says he places you on his shoulders with joy. And trust me, when you have found yourself in a pit of sin over and over and over again, you don't smell so good. You're quite dirty. He takes that dirty, smelly, messy old sheep and puts it on his shoulder, puts you on his shoulder, and takes you back home with joy. And then the third one is this repentance where that's the part where you're on his shoulders. You now have turning in a different way. You are no longer, it's not behavior modification. You can't dictate your sin issue, but God can. He's just asking you, will you take my hand? I'm going to take you back home on my shoulders. And then and only then is there's this revival individually. And so as we start to close, I just want to share this. They even stopped the timer on me, but I got to share this. Uh, If the band wants to come out now, they can. I'm starting to close it up. But as I told you, I've been doing a study on on reverence. And uh, I recognize that it's smothered. You guys, it's smothered to have the fear of the Lord, to understand his transcendency, but yes, also know his intimacy. And as we learn, I'm going to just share some of these last key. I realize that there's actually a key to the doorway of life. There's like a key to the doorway of freedom. There's a key to the doorway of just pure joy. And in Leviticus 9.24, it says that the fear of the Lord is a key that opens uh, the door to joy. Malachi 4.2, it says that reverence is a key that opens the door to freedom. Exodus 20.20, it says that this key is actually the thing that opens the door to a grateful heart. Proverbs 16.6, it says that the fear of the Lord is a key that opens the door to staying away from evil. 
Hebrews 5, 7, it says that fear of the Lord is a key that opens the door to God hearing my prayers. How many of us want God to hear our prayers? He says you have to draw to, to me first, draw near to me, bow down to me. 1 Samuel 12, 14, it says that the fear of the Lord is the key that opens the door to following God. Revelation 19, 5, it says that reverence, the fear of the Lord is a key that opens the door to praising God. I'm going to share a few more because, yes, it's this ridiculous how often the word mentions the fear of the Lord is the very doorway to life. Psalm 129.1, the, the fear of the Lord is the key that opens the door to receiving his blessing. Psalm 34.7, reverence is a key that opens the door to angels camping near you and rescuing you. Psalm 115.111 or 11 says, reverence is the key that opens the door to trusting God as my helper and my shield. And for lack of better of time, I'm just going to go to the very last one because I have so many of them. Revelation 15, 4, it says, reverence is a key that opens the door to experiencing the holiness of our good Father. So I want to just encourage every one of you where you're at this morning, grab hold of the key. Grab hold of the key and recognize just, just recognize what's going on internally. Recognize that you get to come before a holy, perfect, mighty, good God, that that's where you experience his love. It's in that repentance. It's in, it's in, that, in that reverence that you receive this love that you don't deserve. You deserve it none, but he gives it to you nonetheless. And you will never be able to experience that washing over of love. You will never be able to experience that undone, never the same, I'm completely ruined beautifully by the love of God. Never until you first recognize, have a reverence, have a repentant heart. And then there is this straight up revival within the, within the very belly of your soul. And I'll end it here, Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now Israel, and now Kensington Church, what does the Lord require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord, your God. And because you fear him, you're able to now please him. You're able to love him. You're able to serve him. You're able to obey him in your heart and in your soul. So as I close this up, I want to just encourage you this morning, maybe just in your seats here, ask the Lord to reveal him to you to take that veil away that might be present that 2 Corinthians talks about so that you can go into the throne room and see him for who he is. See him for the beauty of who he is. See him for the gorgeousness of who he is. See him for the one who takes away your sin and then smiles at you and says, let's go. So Father, I thank you. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your holiness. I thank you, Father God, that we're in your presence here, Father. I pray that you're removing that veil for so many of us that maybe just don't see you, they don't understand you, they don't revere you. And Father, it's when we revere you, it's when we have the fear of God that you give us that key that we get to walk into that door that we've been trying to knock down our whole life, all those gaping holes of our heart, you fill them in, in your throne room, this throne room of grace. And so, Father, I don't want one person to leave here without first just confessing. Just get out the junk. Remove the pain. Remove the sin. Remove the darkness. Remove the perversion. We give it all to you. You are the only one that can take it. 
There is no shame. There is no condemnation. And only then when we give it to you do we experience this flooding, this washing over of this ridiculous, crazy, relentless love that we don't deserve that makes us fall flat on our knees. And it's only there in that posture of keeping low, flat on our knees, knowing that we've been loved in an undeserving way, can we say, send me. Father, thank you that we no longer have to fight to be first. It's a decoy of the enemy. It's a lie from the pit of hell. We can only find that joy and that blessedness in allowing you to be first. Our weakness, your strength, is put on a platform to see. Father, I don't want one person to leave here changed. We are not here for entertainment. We are here for transformation and revelation. Father, ambush every person's heart today in the name of Jesus, the powerful, mighty, perfect Yahweh that we have every time we breathe. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' holy and perfect in your mighty good name. Amen. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.